Today we are going to talk about being a servant or being a slave. Last week we did a high altitude view of John chapters 3 and 4. We looked at the conversation that Christ had with both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Christ, these were two very different people, but Christ had a singular message. Oh, I forgot. Bibles. If you do not have a Word of God, the ushers have Bibles. Just raise your hand. They will get them to you. Two very different people, but Christ had a singular message of belief. Nicodemus walked away from that conversation unrepentant and still an unbeliever. Now that, fortunately, wasn't all for Nicodemus. But at that day, at that time, he left unbelieving. The woman, completely opposite. She knew she needed a Savior. She saw who the Messiah was. She believed and was saved. We saw last week it was the Father's will that required Christ to leave Judea, go to Samaria, offer that gift of faith to her. Jesus did exactly what God God wanted in His will, in His timing. Now today, we're going to look at the conversation that Christ had immediately after He spoke with the Samaritan woman. And just as Jesus had a specific message for the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus, he had a specific message for the disciples as well. And they had some similarities to the Samaritan's woman discussion. The first similarity is an unexpected, life-changing conversation. If you remember, the Samaritan woman was simply going to the well to draw water. She had no idea that she was going to run into a stranger much less that that stranger be the savior of the world, and had no idea that there was going to be an ensuing conversation. After all, Jewish men did not speak to Samaritan women, as we saw. But the disciples are going to have the same. Remember, they were going from Judea to Galilee. They were just passing through Samaria, and they too had an unexpected, life-changing conversation with Christ that day at the well. The second similarity is when Jesus spoke with that Samaritan woman, he crossed over a number of Jewish traditions, orthodoxy, and Jewish laws to be able to have that conversation. He is going to turn and ask the disciples to do the very same thing. However, to accomplish that, Jesus needs to break through some of the mindset of the disciples. See, these young Jewish men... They think salvation is only for the Jews. Jesus is going to have to break through and explain to them that salvation is for everyone. And then second, that it's their, it's, it's Jesus' will that they take that gospel message to everyone. Lastly today, we're going to see that the message that Christ had for the disciples, we're going to look at it and see how it applies to us as well. So let's get started. We're still in John chapter 4. So if you can, if you turn to John chapter 4, I'm going to do a quick review of the setting. Um, as I said, Christ and the disciples left Judea. They're going to Samaria. 
excuse me, they left Judea, they're going to Galilee, and they have a stopover in Samaria. And the stopover is nothing more than Christ being weary from the travel, and they're going to stop. Or so they thought. See, let's remember that the Jews and the, and the Samaritans do not like each other. And let's remember that for the disciples, this stop was a road trip potty stop. I mean, we're going to get in, get out. Fill up the tank, go through the drive-thru, and get on to Galilee. We don't like being here. We don't like these Samaritans. But the sovereign God of the universe is in control of all things. It's no accident that Jesus was left alone at the well. To do the Father's will, he had to have an uninterrupted conversation with the Samaritan woman. For Christ to break through those norms, those that orthodoxy, the disciples weren't ready for it. They couldn't be around. For the woman to have a true, vulnerable discussion with Jesus, the others couldn't be around. So God is in control. All twelve went in town to get food. Christ met the Samaritan woman. They had a conversation. We walked through that last week. And in perfect timing, just like the movies, just as Christ is finishing that conversation, just as she's realizing that He is the Messiah, she's dumbfounded. She's leaving that water pot, going back to the city. Just as all that is happening, the disciples return. Ready to hit the road, McDonald's bag in hand, ready to go. And then they see something they can't believe. Christ is talking to this woman. So let's pick up. We're going to read through John chapter 4, 27 through 38. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 25. We're going to back up and start with um, what the woman says. So I will read verse 25. I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When the one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am who speak to you. At this point, the disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking to a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or what do you speak, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left the water pot, went to the city, and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to him, to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his work. Do not say there are four months yet Excuse me. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They are white for harvest. Already who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you have not labored. Others have labored, 
and you have entered into their labor. So this is my first point. The challenge that Jesus reveals to the disciple. Go evangelize the whole world. Salvation is for all. It's interesting that Christ has chosen this time to open the eyes of the disciples. And specifically, God's desire for them to evangelize not just the Jews, but all the world. The idea of evangelizing and saving non-Jewish people is so foreign to these guys and to most Jewish people. Now, it shouldn't be. We'll look at some texts that they should be readily know, but they choose to ignore it. The disciples... So getting back, in the minds of the Jewish people, salvation is for them, and the Messiah was coming to set up a kingdom that was going to rule over all. That is what was in the mindset of the disciples. Not salvation. A Messiah is coming for a kingdom. We're going to finally be on top of all these others. You could see that mindset when Christ came, when, when they came back and Christ was talking to the woman. Verse 26, and he said, I am who speak to you. At this point, the disciples came. They were amazed. They're saying, why, why are you speaking to her? I mean, you could see, you could see it. They're walking up. He's speaking to her. He's breaking all these traditions. They're looking at each other. Not, no one's saying a thing. After all, it is Jesus, but they're all thinking the same thing. What in the world is he doing? What I don't get is why are they so surprised? These guys have been walking with Jesus. Why are they surprised at this? We just saw he went toe-to-toe with Nicodemus, the chief teacher of all of the Jewish people. He just cleansed the temple. They should know he is coming to break down all of these old traditions and prejudices. And quite frankly, they just haven't seen it yet. They haven't gotten it all yet. It hasn't sunk in. And I think it, we need to take a few minutes and unwrap why it hasn't sunk in yet. So that we can see what Christ has to address in these men to break this down. So the will that he just spoke to them, they will be able to do. So my first point, I want to walk through some obstacles to this challenge, this will that he just gave to them. The first obstacle is the tradition and prejudices. And the answer to tradition and prejudices prejudices. Viewing the world through Christ's eyes. We don't. We view the world through our eyes. We seldom really see the world through Christ's eyes. These men, as I've said several times, were dominantly Jew. That was what was in their mind. Last week we walked through some Old Testament history. We talked about the tension between Judea and Samaria why these people hated each other so much. There was a thousand-year blood feud. These people were all descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But they started hating each other. 
And it penetrated their religion. It penetrated their customs and traditions. It penetrated how they thought. And it was all wrong. You see, the Samaritans, when they were overtaken by the Assyrians, they started mixing races, intermarrying. They mixed their religions. And to the Jewish people, that was completely wrong. It was against the law. And the Jewish people completely rejected them. The Samaritans' response was to reject the Jewish Scripture. They said the Torah is the only true Scripture. They rejected everything else. All the prophets, the Psalms, Proverbs, all the other writings. And that was the foundation. And it went back and forth for centuries. And it went deeper and deeper. And that's the blood feud. That's the foundation of the blood feud. But it affected their traditions and customs. I mean, even the way they traveled. A lot of elite Jews would go around Samaria, doubling their trip, because they hated them so much they did not want to go through Samaria. It penetrated their thinking. In the Jewish people's eyes, Samaritans were the lowest of lows. They had forsaken God. Gentiles didn't know God. So in the Jewish mind, there were Jews, the chosen people of God, there was Gentiles, and then there was those Samaritans who forsook God. They knew better. This was the mindset of these young Jewish men that were, that were Christ's disciples. This stuff was true to them. As true as the rising and the setting of the sun, it wasn't to be discussed. It wasn't to be changed. It, that's just what the truth was in their view. Now beyond this Samaritan tension, the international tension was the same. I mean, these people had been um, under enslavement from the Assyrians, from the Babylonians, from the Egyptians. Their kingdoms torn apart and tortured for centuries. This is all part of their mindset. And it's clear in the Old Testament that there was a Messiah coming that was going to establish a kingdom, and that's what they were looking for. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7.27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one, of the Messiah. His kingdom will be everlasting, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. The coming kingdom. That was their focus, so much that they fought about it. James and John, Mark chapter 10, two of the disciples, they come up to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do? Grant us that one might sit on the left and one might sit on the right in your kingdom. The kingdom. Dominance over their enemies. This was what so many of the Jewish people held on to. Bad thinking. It was clear in the Old Testament the Messiah was coming. It was clear in the Old Testament that the Messiah would bring salvation to the Jewish people. But what they missed is Isaiah 49, Isaiah 59, who said salvation is going to come through the Messiah to all of the world. Isaiah 49, 6. I will make you, the Messiah, a light 
of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the world. Most Jewish people just wanted to ignore that part. They wanted Daniel more than Isaiah. This was wrong thinking, prejudiced thinking, thinking that they should not have. And a perfect example is the prophet Jonah. The prophet Jonah. Dedicated prophet. He was told by God, go to the the Jewish people's biggest enemy. Go to that capital city and bring them a message of salvation. If you don't, if, if they don't repent, I'm going to destroy them. How did Jonah respond? Jonah responded, I'm going to take a retreat. I'm going to Tarsus. Go ahead and destroy them. (laughs) I hate those people. I don't want you to save them. I'm out of here. Jonah, as we know from the story, finally responded. He went there. He brought them the message. They did repent. And God kept from wiping them out. And after all that was done, after these, these, this, this, these people who hated the Jewish people, who were living in sin, but after they heard and repented and were praising God, Jonah prays to God and says, this is in Jonah 4, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled Tarshish. I fled for Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, who relents from doing harm. Therefore, Lord, I knew you would do this. Please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. For Jonah, he'd rather die than live with his enemies that were saved. This was heavy in the Jewish mindset, heavy in the disciples. Viewing the world through their own eyes instead of viewing it through the eyes of Christ. Christ and the disciples were going to have to awaken their hearts. He is going to have to break through these centuries of traditions to be able for them to do His will. The next slide... Next obstacle is ignorance. Jesus had to give them more information. To break some of these things down, he was going to have to help walk them through it. Christ, in his sovereign timing, was going to use the conversation that he had with the Samaritan woman and catapult into a time and a discussion with these men. Address both the traditions and the prejudices and the ignorance. So let's look back. Verse 28, as we continue to walk through. So the woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to them, to the men, come see a man who told me things I have not done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. So, boom, she leaves. While she's gone, Christ immediately goes into a discussion with them. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
So the disciples are saying to one another, who brought him? No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Now, in the disciples' defense, it was a bunch of guys. I mean, I've seen the ladies' teas. I mean, everything is set out, and it's pretty, and it's orderly. And if you've been to a GBF men's event with food, I don't want to use the word chaos, but it's, it's a bunch of guys. It's like, whose plate is this? And are you going to eat that? And where's the bacon? And can I open this bag of chips? I mean, it's guys. So in the defense of the disciples, not a surprise if someone had brought Christ's food. But getting back to it seriously, just similar to Nicodemus and to the woman, Christ is going to use a physical item to explain a spiritual truth. Verse 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his works. Christ is actually making a very clear and hard line here. He is weary, they know it. But above physical food, his focus is to accomplish the will of God. The will of the Father at this moment is for Christ to challenge the disciples. To open their minds to salvation for all and his will for their lives. He says to them in verse 35, Do not say, do not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. He's made a transition. And they know he's using a physical item now to explain a spiritual truth. It's not in the text, but I believe when he says, behold, lift up your eyes, I don't think he's he's pointing to surrounding fields at this point. I think he's pointing to to the Samaritans that are coming out of the city. They're a ways off and they're coming. And he says to them in verse 36, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for the life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and the other reaps. In this case, the saying is true. See, in the physical world, the same farmers or group of farmers that worked together, which was happened a lot then, they, they planted their fields, they harvested, they harvested their fields. But in the spiritual world, that is not always the case. In fact, often is not the case. In the spiritual world, many times, someone plants the seed, someone else harvests the seed. John the Baptist came before Christ, heralding the Christ, heralding repentance and salvation of the Lord and the Messiah who is coming. Now in this very next verse, Christ unveils His will, the Father's will, for the disciples. In a very clear and concise statement, Jesus says to them, verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. I sent you to reap. In English, it doesn't really capture all of it. In English, that can be thought of as a one-time event or a one-time task or maybe even just for one season. 
the Greek uses the word apostello. means to be set apart and sent on a mission. The verb tense in that case, set apart and sent out. Not one time, not two times. This is what I will. Christ looks right at him. This is my will. You are set apart and to reap the harvest pointing to the Samaritan people that are coming out. This had to blow the minds of these men. I mean, remember, they're in the middle of a road trip. They pulled off the Jerusalem highway. They've got fillet of fish in hand. They're ready to go on to Galilee. I mean, is this really the time and place for Christ to reveal His will to them? I mean, on the way up the road, Christ didn't tell them, Oh, guys, hey, we're going to pull off the side of the road here. We're going to have a little retreat. And I'm going to you know, reveal to you my will for your lives. I want you to be thinking and praying about that. And uh, when we get up here in a little bit, we'll talk. No. That's not what happened. These guys, their minds are blown. Jesus has revealed His plan for them. This isn't the plan of, oh, we're, oh, we're going to start a kingdom and here is your roles in my coming kingdom. No. My plan is for you to come and save the very people you dislike. And it's not just right now. It is ongoing. This is my will for you. To top it off, it's not later. It's now. The harvest is ripe. The fields are ripe. No, we're not going to take five months and make a plan and come back. It's right now. And it's my will for you to do it for your entire life. Next, verse 39, from the city, the Samaritans believed him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking Him to stay with them. He stayed two days. Many more believed because of His Word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves and know that this one indeed is the Savior of the world. Disciples didn't have a retreat to figure out God's will for their lives. The disciples had a two-day conference, had a two-day workshop on how to save the world. Jesus and the disciples went back and were in that village for two days, talking, saving, bringing the message. And He showed them exactly how to do it. I mean, if you think about this, capsulated a few minutes before Jesus, as the disciples were walking up, they're amazed that He's talking to this woman. And within minutes later, Christ is asking them to do the same and do it for the rest of their lives. Those are the obstacles that have to get broken down. Now let's take a few minutes and look at the keys of how that can be broken down. The first key, modeling Christ. When you look at Jesus' example, He follows the will of God without question and without delay. When God said, you need to go to Samaria, He picked up 
and went to Samaria. Simple. Simplicity of the obvious. He didn't try to do it. He didn't think about it. He didn't figure out if it fit his giftedness. He simply just did it. John 8.29, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. The will for God for us, first thing, save. Be saved. Accept the gift of faith. Be saved. Once we are saved in Christians, we're supposed to be in a local church. We're supposed to read and pray regularly. We're supposed to serve. We're supposed to evangelize. Christ's model of that, just do it. The second key to fulfilling the challenge, God's will is priority over our own. There are several uh, verses here in John. John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 5.30, I do not seek my will, but the will of the Father who sent me. He tells these people time after time, It's not me, it's God. He continues to model it. John 17, 4. I have glorified you on earth, Christ talking to the Father. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. The ultimate, Matthew 26. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Even in facing death, Christ is going to do the will of the Father. There's no conflict here, by the way. This is Christ simply identifying a desire of His heart, but then quickly followed with determined focus to do the will of the Father. Modeling exactly how we should submit. Exactly what we should do when we face the same thing. Jonah didn't do that. He didn't say, I don't want to go to the... He just left to Tarsus. The next one, having a slave mentality. Christ had a slave mentality. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. Christ Himself becoming a slave and becoming in the likeness of men, humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death. Christ was a slave to God. Your translation might have the word bondservant. Bondservant is a pretty word for slave. You see bondservant and slave, you see them both in the, in the New Testament. They're all the same word in Greek, doulos, slave. Christ was a slave to God. And I'm not sure if we in America today can really understand the mindset of slavery. I mean, I know we have it in our heritage, but I don't know that we can truly appreciate it. You know, 24-7 under a master, telling you what to eat, what to drink, where, when to work, when to rest, where to sleep. under the control of another. Now this is different than a home servant or house servant, butler, maid, that would serve in a house for a set period of time but still have the rest of their lives. Right? 
They're still subjugated to a master for a period of time. But at the end of their hours of service, they can go home. They can eat what they want. They can spend their money as they as they wish. A slave, you own nothing. All freedom is gone. And I don't know, as I said, if we as Americans can appreciate that. But when Paul said to the Jewish people, slaves, they understood slavery. Enslaved by the Assyrians, Babylonians, Egyptians. When you say slave to the Jewish people, at this time, and at this time, they're under the boot of Roman control too. They knew what slavery was. Paul said to them, when you accept Christ, you put yourselves under, under the slavery of the Lord. Romans 6.18 You have been set free from sin, you accepted salvation, and have become slaves to righteousness in Him. Jesus understood the, menta- the um, slavery mentality. He was focused 100% on the God's, on God's will, doing it whenever and however the Father wanted. Jesus didn't put up roadblocks. We put up roadblocks. We're good at putting up roadblocks. We have excuses. We have excuses about we use our job or how crazy our life is or many other things. They're endless. And sometimes if we don't have excuses, we just have anxieties or fears that keep us from doing God's will, serving, evangelizing. We're fearful of interacting with people. We're fearful of rejection. We're fearful that we don't have enough Bible knowledge. Sometimes we're afraid that we're going to get out there and God's not going to be with us and meet our needs. Or maybe something that He's calling us to, He's going to reduce us down to just our needs. If it's not excuses and fear, sometimes it's, that's just not what I want to do. You mean, God has said, and you know, God wants you to do something and you just don't want to do that. That was Jonah. Jonah was, No question, a dedicated servant to God. Undeniable. But when God asked him to go to this arch enemy's city and evangelize them, he could not understand that. Why in the world would God want to save an enemy of Israel? That didn't make any sense to him. He hated them and he didn't want to do it. Christ, the perfect example of the mentality, slave mentality, doing whatever God wants and the timing God wants and how He wants, put up no obstacles. Jonah, I call it a servant. He served God, but he didn't get the slave mentality. He didn't do it unquestionably. He didn't do it knowing that this is God's will. We are called 
to be different. We are supposed to be under Christ and under His will. Jonah did nothing but complain. And when it was all over, he just wanted to die because he didn't want to live with his enemies. So what is our challenge? We live in a very prosperous time, the most prosperous time in history. We have freedoms that were unthinkable to men in history. And I think that's the biggest challenge. For us, our lives are not our own. And just as God purposed the disciples, just as God purposed Christ, God purposes each one of us. He tells us in Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, you were bought for a price. God, or Christ, chose us out of the world. John fifteen nineteen. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world. God purposed us. God purchased us. It is our duty to do His will. He made us. He has ordained the number of days that we have. Those are in Psalms 139. He sacrificed His Son, giving us salvation. He's given us the gift of faith to accept that salvation. And He's going to glorify us in the future for eternity with Him. We are here to do His will. Our lives are not our own. The second point is we are to have that slave mentality, just as I was talking a minute ago, modeled by Christ. Paul talked about it in Galatians 1.10. If I still pleased men, I would not be a slave to Christ. He talked about it again in Corinthians. Similar, the one who was freed, the one who has accepted salvation, he is called to Christ as a slave. You know, being older, I tell my kids I'm not old. I'm older. Being older allows you to have a perspective and look back on your life. For years, Colossians 3.17 was a, a, it was a great theme verse of mine. Whatsoever you do in word or deed... Do all in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to Him through God the Father. And I lived what I would call a dedicated life. I worked hard. I served hard. Served in many areas. I raised my children to know and to love God. But I still had my fingerprints on stuff. I still had my preferences. Not everything by any means the timing of stuff or if I had a choice where to serve I went where I wanted to go sometimes that's not a slave mentality 
That's not Christ's example of, I do not seek my Father, I do not seek my will, but the Father's will. I will always do what's pleasing to Him. My third point, just as the disciples, we are called apostello. We are sent. Just as Christ used that word to send the disciples to evangelize the whole world, His instruction to us in Matthew 28 is the exact same. To all believers, make disciples of all nations. Reap the harvest. My father's side of the family are farmers. Several generations of farmers. I spent several summers back in Kentucky on my uncle's farm. Farming is more complex than it appears to many, if you're not familiar with farming. Um, But despite all the moving parts and complexities, at the end of the day, farming is about sowing and reaping. And I think the same is true of us in our lives as Christians. We have a lot of complexities. There are a lot of things. We have families to raise. We have relatives that we're involved with. We have jobs, of course. We have areas that we're serving in the church. We have relationships that we're focused on. All of that thing, all of that is, of course, important and a priority. But evangelizing the lost is also a priority. Sowing and reaping is also a priority. We can't use the obstacles of the other things in our lives to keep us from sowing and reaping. God has placed all of us in this time in history, in Silicon Valley. I don't know if you know it or not, but Silicon Valley is considered to be the darkest place in the entire U.S. spiritually. Barna Research The San Francisco Bay Area has the highest percentage of unchurched adults. San Francisco Bay Area has the lowest percentage of self-identified Christians. Are we ready to reach the Bay Area? Are we ready to follow the model of Christ? To have those conversations with the Nicodemuses and the people like the the woman at the well? I mean, brethren, do we really believe and think the same way as the Samaritans who came out and said, this one indeed is the Savior of the world? Does that beam out of us? Do we live it? Do we live it in such a way that it just naturally falls off of our tongue? I mean, we as Christians have been saved from an eternity in hell. We have the answer of eternal life and a a right relationship with God. Are we living in a fashion that we are actually spreading that? Similar to Jonah, the disciples initially despised their enemies. They hated them. They wanted a kingdom They didn't want to bring the gospel message to them. But the disciples eventually heard Christ and obeyed. They got the message. They rose to the challenge. Unlike Jonah, 
they got their eyes off themselves. They saw the world through Christ's eyes, finally. Their old prejudices and traditions melted away. They followed Christ's model. They got the slave mentality. God's will became their sole priority. Acts says the disciples turned the world upside down with the gospel message. Turned the world upside down. Will we turn the Bay Area upside down? Let me close with this. Matthew chapter 5. A familiar section of Scripture to many. Part of Christ's Beatitudes. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine. Let your light shine in the Bay Area. Let your light shine at home. Let your light shine at work. Let your light shine in your neighborhood. Let me close in prayer. Jesus, Father, the disciples finally got the message. And they turned the world upside down. Our lives are busy. But Father, we know we are to evangelize. We know that we are to sow and reap. We know, Father, You told us Your parting words were to go and make disciples of all nations. Father, just as the disciples, we can't do it on our own strength. We are too weak. We need the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Father, today, it is our prayer that You will ignite in us a passion and a desire to see the Bay Area not with our own eyes, not with our eyes of traditions and prejudices, but through Your eyes to a, the, darkest peop, the darkest area of the U.S., We thank You for Your Word today, Father. And pray that this week will make a difference in someone else's life. This week we can have a conversation with the Samaritan woman or Nicodemus. This week we will make a difference for Your kingdom. All of this in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.